Welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. This is a podcast about our relationship with food and eating, body image, eating disorder recovery, mental health, and more. I am your host, Lynn Thorstensen, a registered nutrition therapist and body image coach based in the West of Ireland. And I'm so glad that you're here. So I am back with another episode of the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. And Today, I'm here with Lynn, who is a newly graduate psychotherapist with a master's in applied psychology, and she has much experience working with eating disorder. And this is why I invited Lynn to be on the podcast, because she has previously published research on orthorexia, and she's just conducted another study on the topic. So that's really where we're going to focus on our conversation today. Uh, Lynn has previously volunteered for BodyWise, and she's also worked in the areas of youth mental health, domestic violence, and disability. And you can connect with Lynn on Instagram at lighthousetherapy underscore Ireland. So I'm going to link to your Instagram handle in the show notes, but you are very welcome, Lynn. And I'm so excited and so glad that we've connected on Instagram and that we get to have this conversation because I feel like the kind there was a there was a lot of conversation around orthorexia maybe six seven years ago like when the clean eating kind of moment it was getting traction and when instagram was in its early kind of days and when we we're all making green kale smoothies and smoothie bowls with frozen berries and all that kind of stuff and then i feel it's almost like it's kind of seeded into the background a bit so i think It'd be great to have this conversation because, again, I suppose it's something that could get missed. How would you, like if you were explaining what orthorexia is, how would you explain it? Yeah, so basically orthorexia is an obsession. I would use the word obsession with healthy eating to the detriment of people's physical and mental health. Now, what does that mean? So one of the difficulties with orthorexia is healthy diets actually varies from person to person. So a person with, you can have one person with orthorexia who is vegan, and then you can have another person with orthorexia who is carnivore. So it's not actually the quanta or the, the, the type of diets. It's not the composition of the diet. It is this obsession, this fear, so they basically have a set of very strict rules they'll follow, and then we know deviations. And so if they do happen to have something that's outside their plans, maybe because they get hungry and their diet is not nourishing them enough, they'll feel very, very guilty, very ashamed. And then they'll, as happens with all eating disorders, they will then become stricter and stricter, go back to their strict rules, then they'll break the rules. And then it also causes issues where they're trying not to break the rules, but they live in the world. So they're going to be invited to dinner or maybe there'll be some family event or maybe there's some work thing. And that causes terrible stress because they're constantly monitoring the environment for threats to what make them go off this perfect plan. Um. So, yeah, so that's what orthorexia is. And unfortunately, it's not in the DSM yet. So it's not an official diagnosis yet, unfortunately. Yeah. And where do you think, and you know, I often think about that and obviously as a nutrition professional, you know, you see things um, with 
I suppose other year, like how how I was in the training, the original training, what sometimes happens in my peer colleague community and how people are very strict with their diet for health reasons. And where do you, like, how would you sort of define, like, where's the line or is that kind of from person to person? Like when, and of course, again, bear in mind that there isn't an official diagnosis. Well, the funny thing is the reason there's, there's a few reasons there's not an official diagnosis, but I imagine there will be, it will be in the DSM at some stage. Um, I wouldn't say not too long before it is because um, in, in 2022, um, um, loads of researchers in the field of orthorexia from a, a large amount of countries around the world, they met and they came up with this consensus. And one of the things that they emphasize, which I would emphasize too, is it's all about the inflexibility so you know that uh, people can be interested in healthy eating inverted commas um, and people can be foodies so but again as someone who say interested in healthy eating again healthy eating what even is that that's all other that could be a whole other podcast because that's yes but just say someone finds that they personally feel best on, say, a vegetarian diet. Some people do, some people feel awful on a vegetarian diet, whatever, fine. But the difference is if someone is eating a particular way and they feel good, but it's not a source of stress. So, it, you know, and if they go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you have anemia because you're such and such a diet, they're perfectly willing to try X or Y to help change, maybe improve their anemia. If, say, if they're invited out to dinner, that's not a problem. And then the other big thing, this is a big thing, like their diet is not taking up a big part of day in their life. And they're not going around moralizing and preaching as if it's a religion, telling everyone about their diet. Their diet is just this one part of their life. And, you know, that's fine, but it, it's it's not a big thing. It's not taking over their 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 lives. And that, that is one thing that the panel said, that it's not, it's not this inverted comma healthy eating because it goes so far beyond that. It takes over everything. And that's really what makes it different from healthy eating because it's taken. And then, of course, the other thing is, as I said, people with orthorexia, um, even if they do start to develop associated health problems, they'll st still keep going with their rules because their rules have to come first. And, you know, they won't listen, even if the doctor is saying, oh, my God, I'm worried about your bones. I'm worried about your anemia. I'm worried about whatever. They will still keep going, going, going on with their rules until something happens, like like I suppose like any issue until it gets to a certain point. Yeah. And that's where that sounds like that's where it's sort of tangents on like anorexia, right? But mm -hmm. it's with orthorexia, it's not about weight per se. It's about the illusion of like health. Yeah. But it is really about control in the end of the day, in a sense, though, would you say? It is about control, but the weight thing, now that's a big unanswered question because um, really at first they thought, so the, the man who originally came up with the concept was a man called Stephen Bratman, um, and this was in the late 90s. So he wrote about it in Yoga Journal, it was called. Um, and then later on, he not too long in 2000, he wrote a book. And then the first kind of research on it was in 2004, and so at first the thinking was, oh, it has nothing to do with weight. It's, it's not a weight issue. Um, but then if more research came out, mm, turns out there's some studies saying people with orthorexia really are concerned about weight. There's other studies saying people with orthorexia are trying to lose weight. 
there's other studies saying people with orthorexia don't care about weight at all um so the the it's really quite it's really quite mixed so it's really up in the air um i think personally that i think some people with orthorexia it is a weight issue that they are trying to lose weight by eating a healthy diet and some it isn't that they're really just doing this whole clean eating to be healthy but personally i think i think it is a weight issue for many with orthorexia i really do that is a really interesting because like what comes to mind in my head then is like for the people who have a body that is probably relatively well fits into the cultural norms and beauty standards of like thinness or smaller body um it might be more that the health piece might be more pronounced whereas if you live in a larger body and a body that doesn't fit fit the cultural norm in terms of what it's supposed to look like mm-hmm. then it the weight piece like it for me intuitively feels like it makes more sense that the weight um obsession then really fits into that more yeah. and whether your body decides to you know adhere to that or not it's sort of like it will do what it needs to do like it's fascinating and I think about like even even my own experience like in like I finished my nutrition therapy studies in 2010 and then Instagram happened in like 2011 or 12 and then this whole like with Instagram I don't actually know the full background of how it took hold but you know all of a sudden everybody was taking pictures of their foods and then they got prettier and then all of a sudden it was in this clean eating kind of craze with pretty colorful stuff but it was there was like it was quiet or maybe this was just my experience but it was like there was sort of it was a bit disguised in the sense of the restrictive part of it because it was like all this pretty food and very healthy but like underneath it and what's really been really interesting in the last say decade is a few people that I would have followed at that time who was like big food bloggers and into whole foods if you like and they were vegetarians or vegans have since come out and said actually I had an undiagnosed eating disorder at the time and I have since, you know, worked on my relationship with food and and it's different or some people have been bringing in maybe more meat or dairy products again and sort of changed that. So I just think, I just think that's kind of interesting with how these kind of things have changed. But you said like he was talking about that already in the early 90s or early notice which is about another decade prior to we had like social media kind of getting going on that yeah yeah well the funny thing is um so research um you know moves pretty slowly which is which is fair enough you know you don't want to throw something make something a disease like you publish two papers on you know I mean I understand to an extent but um DSMs take years to make. So DSM, the so DSM is the basically the manual they use to diagnose mental health conditions. And if something's not in there, it's not actually an official diagnosis. Basically, long and short of it. And it takes years to prepare this big bible, if you will. And the last edition was two thousand and thirteen. And the man who was the head of the eating disorders, um section of the DSM said oh there wasn't enough research in 2009 when he was preparing that so 
that's one of the reasons it didn't go into 2000, the 2013 edition. However, the very first paper, official academic paper was 2004, but there's been so much research on it since. There's so much. I mean, the Journal of Eating Disorders, they have an entire section, every issue on orthorexia. So there is a lot of research. Um, the other thing that's kind of hampering at getting into being an official diagnosis is up until very recently, there wasn't um, a good tool basically for, because you can't do blood tests for mental illness. In mental illness is diagnosed by using very specific questionnaires that have been designed over time and such like that. And, you know, they tried various versions and they seem to have found two very good ones now. So that's, that's half of the process. So, yeah, again, I'm coming back to, I'm just hopeful it will be because I feel that there are so many people suffering with orthorexia and because it's a, like you say, with Instagram and everything, it's so socially approved. And yes. if you can't go to your doctor and get diagnosed with it, how are you ever going to get out of that cycle? Whereas if you go to your doctor and you say, I'm suffering with this, that and the other, and it's in a book, they can say, oh, that's orthorexia. You've taken this healthy eating too far. Uh, you know, so I, yeah, so I yeah. think one of the things that feeds orthorexia, no pun intended, um, it keeps that cycle going of the influencers and the clean eating and all this sort of stuff, um, because there is no diagnosis. So it's almost like you're gaslighting yourself. What I have a condition that's not an official condition. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to make with any diagnosis or like people are certainly a lot of people that I work with. Some people have an official diagnosis often if they're younger, but if they have not had any diagnosed eating disorder in the past, but they've been chronically dieting for 20 years, mm -hmm. they're still doing the same behaviors that somebody would fit into the, the diagnostic criteria, but maybe not as intensely or not as, as often, but the suffering is no less. And I think that's so important to remember that your suffering is still valid even if you don't have an official diagnosis and yeah. sometimes having an, and unfortunately this is the system we're in and we talked about this pre-recording it's like having a diagnosis can be really helpful in order to get access to the the support and the care and, and the treatment that you need and then if you if you don't fit that it's much harder to access or like you said, we might end up gaslighting ourselves, thinking, well, I don't have a problem. Or my problem is that, you know, say with binge eating, for example, it's like I don't have enough willpower or that I'm addicted to food. And that's that's my problem. Not that I have an eating disorder that I need support and, you know, that I continue to restrict food and why is that and so forth. So I think it's just important for people to remember. And if you're listening and don't have a diagnosed eating disorder, it doesn't mean that your suffering isn't valid and that you don't, and you still deserve support for things to get better. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I actually personally feel, I think some of my views are maybe considered quite controversial on this, to be honest, but I actually think that a lot of people who say, would say, or, or think that they don't meet criteria for an eating disorder actually do. I really think chronic dieting for 20 years, that's basically, that's probably atypical anorexia, for example. So atypical anorexia is anorexia. However, the person is not clinically underweight. That's the only difference between what's called full threshold anorexia and atypical anorexia. And if you search online, if you're interested in the topic, there's so many stories from people with atypical anorexia who 
yeah, suffered for decades and they just thought, like you say, that they were just chronically dieting and they had, yeah, I just think there's so much self-blame and people think, oh, well, I don't have an eating disorder because X, Y, Z, and it kind of like the fact that most eating disorders are never diagnosed, you know? I agree. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole section, again, I sound like a DSM stan here, but there's a whole section of the DSM in the eating disorder section that it's called OSFED, Older Specified Feeding Eating Disorder. And in that is things like, it's called something like, you know, binge eating disorder of low frequency, bulimia of low frequency. So, for example, someone who binge, who has a very strict diet and then only binges once, uh, once every three months, there you go, that's OSFED. Someone yeah. who um, only purges, you know, from their strict diet maybe once every few months, again, so I, that that would be my contention that I, I think the people who are suffering are genuinely suffering and they're not getting the help they need. Um, yeah. So, but as I said, I, I think because under OSFED, it's like basically anything that doesn't fit into the other boxes. Yeah. But I mean, how often do do people even, or is that even a consideration? Like, mm. you know, whether that it's you personally thinking, yeah, yeah, this is something that happens once in a while, or or I diet for, or I restrict for six months and then I just can't keep it up. And I just like, that's the problem that it feels like, yeah. I mean, I think I've heard of one or two people who like had an OSFED diagnosis, but I, I don't know. I feel like you go into the doctor and you sort of disclose, like they order send you off to somebody else. It's like, but I feel a lot of time it's not picked up. And then again, and if you could, I think this feels really like you just talked about a typical anorexia and people being misdiagnosed or not diagnosed and not treated because of higher weight. So like the inherent medical weight bias in the healthcare system is also a huge barrier, I think, to get for people to get support and treatment and diagnosis is if that's what, what you want and need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because very- it's like, you, you know, because again, right, it comes back to this. I think it was, uh, there was a study that came out in was it like 2017 or something um, from an Australian team. And the headline was like, what can we learn from um, anorexia nervosa, you know, like treating, using behaviors that we diagnosed in one population to treat another have so, you seen that one? I, I, so I just wanted to clarify for you. Yeah, so the, there was a study that was done yeah. and what they were looking at was how could they learn from the restrictive behaviors from people with a diagnosed anorexia nervosa to use those behaviors to treat people with quote-unquote obesity. Wow. Yeah, so there is... Um, wow. I think it's Deb wow. Regard who says that, like she calls eating disorders dieting disorders. And it is that kind of, and this is why I find difficult, like I find difficult to understand why other people find this difficult is like the mental gymnastics to use a set of behaviors to prescribe that to one set of population that is diagnosable in another set of population. And the biggest difference being weight. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's, and I'm, I know we're recording, so I'm kind of totally out myself here, but it makes me so angry. And it's just so morally disgusting. Yep. Yeah. Especially when you consider that weight, um, the biggest the biggest driver of weight is genetics. 
genetics. Yeah. And uh, is this some th new theory Lynn is coming up with? No, this is there was so many twin studies done done on this um for decades. Um and you know twins who were like um, identical twins who were adopted and reared apart. And then as adults, you know, the, the scientists were studying them. And yes, um, no matter the environment, their weight was very, very, very similar. Genetics is the biggest driver of weight, followed by hormones. And then the smallest predictor of weight is actually diet and lifestyle. So there's a lot of blaming the victim. And there's a lot of, you know, yeah, that if someone in a larger body develops an eating disorder, they're almost always a restrictive eating disorder. They're almost always um, praised, and they that's what a lot of Erin Harrop's work about. If anyone's interested in what I'm talking about, Erin Harrop uh, did her dissertation on atypical anorexia, um, and the title of it is quite illuminating. And the title of it is maybe I really am too fat to have an eating disorder, but she mm. talked to people who had gone without treatment for decades, very, you know, and being praised, even when they had, there are certain signs that are very unique to eating disorders, like um, um, a lot of specific kind of cardiac issues and a lot of bone issues that just don't occur in women specifically uh, below a certain age. Like if a woman has a bone issues and she's 65, medically that's unfortunate, but more normal. But if a woman, um, has you know bone issues and she's 25 that is a massive um that's a massive red flag for example but because these she, you know these women were in larger bodies none of those stuff were investigated and they weren't helped and so yeah it's just it's just it's it's very 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 sad and just eating disorder services are just not adequate at all really anywhere which is why most people with eating disorders uh, globally are not diagnosed yeah. so that's 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 the statistic there. And that's why I really do. As I said, I understand it might be an extreme view, but I really think chronic dieting is actually an eating disorder. I don't think it's quote unquote normal. I think those people are suffering and they need treatment. And I would love to live in a world where someone who's a chronic dieter would be told by a doctor that, oh, I'm really sorry, but you know, that's not normal. And we're going to get you a treatment team. You'll be seen as a dietitian and a therapist and a doctor, and we're going to help you get better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but that's so often not the case, yeah. and like oh, never. Really. And and you know, yeah, because those are a lot, a lot. That's a typical a lot of the clients that I work with, and particularly then if you're in a bigger body, you've been told that you're doing the right thing, or you should be trying harder. And if it's not working, you're being offered like bariatric surgery or weight loss drugs or something like that, or people feel like they should want those things, or if you do go down that road it's completely understandable that often you feel like that's the only solution because I've tried all the other things. What's I think not often in that picture is that the full consent and the information of all the potential side effects so that you have an informed, that you're making an informed choice, but it's just that that's the whole challenge around the weight stigma and the med and the weight bias and the medical trainings and Again, like, you know, even in my nutrition training in my profession, there's a lot of stuff there that is, you know, quite weight centric. And it's it takes a lot of unlearning for us as professionals and I think us as people to do that, particularly in a culture. And I often think about that recovery, whether you're recovering from anorexia, bulimia or binge eating disorder 
or some variation thereof, that it would be much easier if you were in a culture that weren't so focused on weight and thinness Mm -hmm. and the link between weight and health, because you have to do all this unlearning yourself, right? And then you go out in the world and it's like sort of subtly reinforcing the message of the eating disorder all over all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I well, I personally think that is the hardest part of eating disorders. That, um, that obviously some people have, you know, a, a lot of trauma. Maybe that caused their eating disorder. But the the old thinking on eating disorders was that they were basically caused by deep dark trauma that you needed to work through. And while many people are traumatized, and perhaps that that is the root of 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 eating disorders for some people. For other people, it's actually not a deep dark trauma at all. It is the world we live in, as you say, the societal fat bias, you know, it's, it just, it is, it is a massive, massive thing. And the fact that, you know, research has demonstrated now the people that are most at risk of eating disorders is, are people who are overweight or obese. They're actually yeah. the most at risk of developing an eating disorder. And you can see why, Um, of course, they're judged every day. Yeah. And because we know that dieting is is the leading predictor of somebody developing an eating disorder, disordered eating. Like so, even if you don't end up in a with a full blown eating disorder, if you keep at the dieting, your relationship with food is going to be messed up because that's just that's just the nature of it. Mm-hmm. Particular if you keep keep at it, whereas there is those odd, odd unicorns to kind of, you know, they tried once and got wasn't for me, you know, and that's it. They never yeah. like it didn't really put a dent and and you said something earlier also around like the personality type of people who are maybe most likely to be vulnerable to develop an eating disorder and maybe orthorexia in particular like what like what would you think is like and from the research that you have done kind yeah. of puts people in that vulnerability position so with orthorexia specifically, the research is quite interesting. The people most likely to develop orthorexia specifically are people who are higher in neuroticism. So if people don't know what that is, neuroticism is just a fancy way of saying um emotional. So the sort of people who would be, you know, highly sensitive types that, you know, they get hurt more easily, they get more depressed more easily, they get anxious about things. That, that sort of that's what neuroticism is so people who are higher in neuroticism and um, people who are perfectionists and then interestingly enough um there's also a correlation between people who people again this goes back to the sensitivity though that people who are sensitive to societal messaging around weight and body image i thought that's a very interesting personality characteristic when i read that and then the other one is um that people who would be quite um, obsessive, orderly sort of people. So the sort of, again, but again, that would be quite common with a lot of these eating disorders, people who like, um, you know, things to be neat and tidy and organized. And I don't just mean a physical presence. I mean, they like their life to be mm. organized and planned. And uh, because there's a lot of, a lot of orthorexic features are quite, ritualistic do you know what I mean like you know I have to have this many this I have to have this food group and I have this rule and that rule it is very orderly in a discussion of course yeah and I I mean there might be a point where that is fine but it's like what you said earlier as well of it's 
it's okay to have a certain structure if that's what feels good, but it's like if it becomes so inflexible yeah. that that now it's just like it really impacts on the rest of your life because food is a, such a big part of our like life it's not just the nourishment of the like that we eat to to have our bodies function well but it's also like how we socialize it's connection with our culture it's connection with the earth like there's so many parts that are woven into that that it's that I think that also brings its own challenge in in the recovery to make you know what does that look like then to broaden that flexibility a bit so that it doesn't impinge on one's overall quality of life how would a person recover is that what you mean or yeah so I mean in the sense of like if you get stuck in that like so now you can't go out with your friends and socialize or family dinners means that everything has to be cooked in a specific way and you know if you're trying to feed other people in your household um but like it makes you know eating disorder tends to make our lives smaller because you know we don't want to go as so like bringing like working out of that so that now you know like you said earlier is like if you turns out you are anemic and maybe you need to bring in some animal products for example or even just being able to go out and socialize without that being a major psychological stress yeah yeah see it is it is all about it is all about the inflexibility that's and that that word's been mentioned quite a lot in the literature on um orthorexia it's the inflexibility you can have any diet you like if it makes you feel good you like it you like the food that's great but if your friend says you want to go out here it's not a big problem it's not a stretch you're not going to be thinking about oh you go to the restaurant they don't have the sort of food you normally have okay well i'll have something else you know everything's very casual everything's very relaxed and you're not thinking about it you know what i mean you're going around maybe you're driving to work you're going to work you're picking up the kids you're planning your holidays food is just something you really don't think that's another big thing food should not be something that's taking up really much space in your brain apart from when you're shopping at the supermarket or you're cooking or you're hungry but it shouldn't be something that's constantly in the back of your mind like a broken record playing over like those very old what were they called grandma was it a gramophone where the record <laughs> like one of that where the record would just be stuck over and over and over and that's yeah. what is like all day every day calculation 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 yeah yeah and, and with most eating disorders i think there is like that and I heard a term, or I read it recently, I'd never heard it before, but they talked about food noise. Yes. And that was, that was a new to me term, but I was like, yeah, that kind of describes it, like how pervasive it is. And I think for people who've never had that experience, it's really, really difficult to, to imagine what that it's like, but when you're in it, it's just, it's just really all consuming, I think. Mm -hmm. The food noise is an interesting one because that is something that, you know, can be a big part of, say, orthorexia or any eating disorder where, you know, you have a disordered eating or an eating disorder, and that's why. But it can also occur in other conditions, like, for example, um, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about these weight loss drugs, um, but a lot of that is to do with the marketing of them. They originally started as drugs for diabetes, and some of them are quite old. Like the original one was put out 20 years ago, and certainly diabetics um would talk about when they're 
insulin resistance or so women with PCOS will talk about their insulin resistance and diabetics obviously would talk about their blood sugar but you know it's all a continuum really between insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes they're on the same mode and people who are using these drugs for um you know medical conditions like diabetes or insulin resistance that's one of the things that they talk about that basically that they didn't have orthorexia but that actually they just were hungry because everything was being messed up because their blood sugar was so out of balance and it was so it wasn't the way it's supposed to be so that's my only caveat so food noise can be caused by an eating disorder but sometimes it can be actually caused by a physiological issue that um and again i think that's something that's often not picked up that when you have um um untreated insulin resistance you can be not everyone with it, but you can be very, very hungry and you can really not feel good. Um, but again, you'd often have that problem where if your blood sugar and your glucose is not in the diabetic range yet, um, you might be told it's all in your head. So then that creates a vicious cycle where you really do think it's in your head and you know, and then that can end up with disordered eating. So really, and actually, funny enough, it is a bit of an offshoot here, but like PCOS, for example, the rate of um, there was a rate of eating disorders or disordered eating in one large study was 80%. Wow. Makes complete sense to me because of the physical impact of if your PCOS is not under control and your, your insulin and blood sugar is all over the place, you're not going to feel good. So that makes sense to me. And then the other part of it is, is that, you know, one of the main symptoms of PCOS is unexplained weight gain out of nowhere. And so then people start with the disordered eating and the diet and the eating disorder. So, so yeah, yeah. So food one um, can be both. It can be this torturous thing that truly is because you're starving your body, but it can also be a more complex thing that's also got to do with blood sugar and insulin and stuff. So that's why I'd be a big fan of like a holistic care for an eating disorder, you know, as in like, you know, dietitian, therapist, and a doctor all working together. And that is what's considered best practice, but unfortunately. Yeah, but like how many people, and I laugh at this, right? And I'm in yeah. private practice. I mean, again, unless you are fortunate to get a diagnosis, first of all, or you can pay for the diagnosis privately and get the person a referral to, that, to the practitioner who can do the diagnosing. And then you have to get access into the system and then you have to fit the boxes to, and usually there's a weight, there might be weight criteria as well. And if you're not thin enough or your body weight isn't low enough, then you're like not sick enough. And that feeds to the eating disorder. So like for anybody who's like outside of that, having that full team is really difficult. Like some of my clients that I work with have therapists alongside the work that I do, which is great. It's just like ideal scenario, I think. And you have two professionals. And if you're paying privately, that's a certain expense that not maybe everybody can carry. And then sometimes I find how it often works with the people that I work. It's like that it's kind of like a, like a tandem in the sense of people might have done a certain amount of therapeutic work on other areas of their life. And maybe their therapist wasn't trained in eating disorders or disordered eating so they're like, that came to light and then they end up with somebody like me and we work on that stuff. Or they might end up coming to me first to the sort of nutritional entry point and we work on the relationship with food. 
and maybe some other underlying stuff like it could be relationships issues or marriage issues or that could be unresolved childhood trauma or something else might come along and you can see that right this is also kind of like fanning the flame like we've done all this work but there is a there's something else or just it just comes up and then people move on from my work to a therapist to continue on with that so that's in my clinical practice and experience it often looks like that in the space that I'm in but I would love for everybody to have and you know a multidisciplinary team to to work but it feels like unless you are in that minority with a restrictive eating disorder that it's become quite bad um and you're sort of either heading for hospitalization you're in hospital or you just you know that's where that's kind of like where some of that structure seems to be in place other than that good luck (laughs) you know you have to cobble your own team together or if you're like you know we talked about people with chronic dieting before it's like often when people have gotten to a place where it's like rock bottom and they don't know where to go and that's when they end up like with with me or with somebody similar or with a therapist to work through some of that stuff but this is like it's not new you know yeah I mean that's the great tragedy of it all like you know globally you know it's recommended best practice is a team of a doctor or a psychiatrist depending on which you prefer yourself um you know a dietitian nutritionist and then a therapist that's what's recommended um, and even the HSE in their position paper on eating disorders, like the eating disorder program and stuff, they, they talk about this. But exactly what you said, um, people do. I have known people who have done that, but they're coming from a place where they've got supportive. It's usually parents, because even if the person is, is in a relationship or married, you know, generally your parents might be retired and they might have savings and stuff. So you have, you'll have parents or family members that are aunts or uncles who are paying for this person to have that team because you're exactly right that's what people need that's what best practice shows but so many people can't get that and again coming back to the suffering like you know i'm not sitting here saying that chronic dieting is you know oh there's loads of academic literature on how it should be i'm saying that i personally think it should be classified as an eating disorder simply because so many people with chronic dieting actually do fulfill eating disorder criteria in the ospec category but they're not getting diagnosed and the suffering they go through is unbelievable. I mean, people are suicidal. This is, you know, it's just horrendous. And, you know, you know, a big part of the reason is, is, is again, I keep coming back to a big part of the reason is the, you know, societal, um, like society, basically like society, you know, emphasis on thinness as your worth. And it's, it's very difficult because, you know, um, Gwyneth Alwyn, um, she doesn't anymore, but she used to have quite an active website on eating disorders, but she wrote an article one time about, um, is it Yori Topi or something, but um, is the name of the website, but she talked about, um, you know, that only something, a tiny percentage, something like 5%, 10%, maybe, I think it's more like 5 to 10%, I can't remember exactly, of women have a BMI naturally, um of 20 19 20 so for those not in the know if you have a bmi of 1920 that means you're not too far from being clinically underweight and you're almost certainly in the lowest dress sizes that you could buy in store so you're at the societal level of very very slim 
Um, and but this is the ideal. So again, that's kind of coming back to well, one can see how people who are naturally that way are less likely to develop eating disorders because they're not ever going to have the pressure in the same way. Um, now, of course, I'm not saying these people are not ever going to feel bad because we live in the world we live. So they might say, oh, I don't like my thighs, I don't like my arms, whatever. Um, but they're not ever going to be in the same pressure. They're certainly not going to go to a doctor with an itchy leg and be told they need to lose weight or be told that they can't have surgery until they lose weight. Or, you know, I mean, terrible stories you hear about people going for a run and people making fun of them because they're larger. You know, these are things that are not going to happen to someone who's a BMI of 19 or 20. So you can see how they're just not as vulnerable to eating disorders. Yeah, like the way I think, yeah, what you're talking about is the, the anti-fat bias and the weight stigma that is there as well and how that really impacts our relationship with food eating in our bodies and like the cultural pressure. And I remember, I think it's the book I was reading that came out, I don't know, something in the 90s and it's called Moving Away From Dieting. It's like kind of on the intuitive eating spectrum, but they do go through this per- you know, made up person story. And they talk about, say, Alice, and she was when she was young and whatever, and there's some chaos in the family and stuff. And she started using food to cope with that. And food is available, maybe, um, you know, as a, as a way of taking care of herself when other emotional support wasn't available. That's all grand until Alice gets to stage other in puberty, or later on in life, she gains some weight. So she's been using food as a way of coping. And I know we weared off from the orthorexia topic here, but it's not until the weight is seen as a problem. And of course, this can happen at any stage on that trajectory. It could happen when the kid is five or six years old, or it can happen when you're 15 or 16, or you could be in your early 20s. And then it's like, okay, now the, the now it's like the weight now is a problem. Like the coping with food wasn't such an issue in the sense until the weight became an issue. And now we layer on on top of the, with the dieting and the binge restrict cycle, or if you're unlucky again, you happen to have a body that once you lose a certain amount of weight, now eating becomes harder and you end up in a restrictive eating disorder instead. So it's like, you know, which is, which is where, where again, I think we have to like continuous to chip away at dismantling this anti-fat bias that we have in society because yes it might not be ideal if we're using food as our only coping tool but it seems to be a bit like you know when you have people smoking and they're thin it's almost like it's not seen as as big of a health issue even though it still is for that individual of course if they want to smoke they can smoke but if it's if if they, if they don't look what we are all sort of indoctrinated, what health looks like, I think, then it's it's almost like, yeah, it's not that bad. Do you know what yes. I mean? Yes. And uh, for example, smokers are rarely denied care. The only exception to that rule is certain surgeries. They are because there are certain surgeries where it's extremely dangerous. The risk of death or serious complications if you smoke is way, way higher. Um. But that's pretty much it. And to be fair to the surgeons, they have a very good reason. They want to make sure the person comes out of the surgery alive or not ferociously disabled. So there's a lot of logic to that. But otherwise, smokers are not denied care. You know, you can make the argument that they're treated badly because, you know, obviously the 
you're not allowed to smoke indoors and they're even even on hospital grounds and stuff. So I, I do understand that argument personally. I really do. Um, but you're right. They're 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 not experiencing the same the same stigma at all. And that that people who are living in larger bodies are absolutely. And I know we have kind of veered off when we're talking about antifa, but that's because certainly the research on orthorexia is pretty interesting. That um it really does seem to be a factor in a lot of people with orthorexia that it is a means to lose weight or control the weight for a lot of people now i don't think that's everyone with orthorexia so i imagine that maybe it'll be a thing where it's a category maybe one of the criteria is is desire for weight loss but not everyone has that and that's fine yeah. but i do think it plays a significant role in orthorexia because it's been documented repeatedly in studies so yeah that's so interesting and i i, I feel like Again, if you're in a smaller body, it's easier for the healthy eating to turn into orthorexia because of whatever, trying to manage a health condition or a sense of control or whatever, and not it not being about weight as such. But if you're in a larger body, it feels more intuitive to me that it becomes about weight or weight loss as well, because that's the kind of cultural messaging and uh, again the weight bias and then it's like that sort of reinforcing of these messages over and over that you're doing well or you're doing something that's good when it's become a huge problem in your life like when it's sort of passed through that when the flexibility is gone and your relationship with food is no longer you know enjoyable and you know nourishing in, in every way right so yeah so is there anything like uh lynn that's you know how do people like what's the way out of it like how can how can people get better like how can you heal from the orthorexia um well first i thought i'd just say quickly that something that has occurred to me um if you're listening to this and you're wondering oh do i have orthorexia could i have a problem one other thing to think about is yes the inflexibility the other thing to think about is time. How much time are you spending thinking about food um, and making the perfect grocery list, making the perfect meals, hanging out on forums is a big thing. You know, are you on Facebook groups for healthy eating? Are you constantly on Instagram? You know, um, you can find yourself in these little groups. So that's another thing that if it's taken up half your life, that's that's a sign. Um, but in terms of getting out, so... As amazing as it is to stand here in 2023 and say, or 24, oh my God, I'm so <laughs> Oh my God. But it's as amazing as it is, it is to, to sit here and say 2024, but there has not yet been even one study on treatment for orthorexia. And again, that's because they've been spending their time, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what the right test to test for it and find out the symptoms and stuff like that. But, but the one of the things that, has been said is basically things that have been shown to be helpful to all eating disorders are probably going to be helpful for orthorexia. So um personally, you know, so there's a lot of really good research saying that intuitive eating um and um sort of doing um body positivity slash body neutrality work um can be very helpful because again there is that link to weight and body image that a lot of people think orthorexia is not about that, but unfortunately it, it does appear to be for a lot of people. So intuitive eating works um, 
seems to be one of the things and then also and then also I would say to anyone general listening to this who has um disordered eating slash eating disorder that if you're going to go for therapy or you're going to go for help you know go to someone who says on the website or on wherever you're looking that they have experience with intuitive eating health on every side those sort of things because um unfortunately if you don't know what you're doing and you're treating someone with an eating disorder and you don't have any training in anti-fat bias any training in, in diet culture any training in any of this you can actually do great harm you know i suppose the best way of putting it maybe it would be like things are very different everyone's you know mental health professions are well educated on depression nowadays but but maybe 60 years ago i don't know i wasn't around then but maybe if you went to a therapist back in the day, maybe they would just say, I need to be grand. Haven't you got a lovely home with lovely children? I think there was that attitude, actually. Um, uh. So I feel like, you know, you're pretty safe with most therapists and, and doctors and stuff for going and say help with depression. Um, although obviously nothing is perfect. Absolutely, there are issues. But, you know, the the the, the great harm that can be done um, with eating disorders is, is really there. So my big thing will be if you're going for help with orthorexia or any eating disorder, really make sure that they are certified, basically, that they're not just someone who only has, not that only, it's a big deal to, to get a therapy degree, but, you know, you want to make sure they're certified because it is very specialized work. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think it feels like the anti-fat bias or like, and for us as professionals having to do our own work really around that even more so I think if you live in a smaller body and don't have a lived experience of um you know externalized weight stigma I think most of us have internalized shit that we picked up along the way but in that sense and um, because yeah you can do you can do great harm and I'm very grateful for my clients have been teaching me and and that I have learned from about their lived experience and what it is like unfortunate what it is like like how people make judgments and comments um just by how how they present in the world which is I don't agree with so yeah kind of going along with that there's a a really brilliant uh, pediatric eating disorder specialist in America called Dr. Rebecca Peebles and she once gave a talk to clinicians and she said, and I quote, and I thought this is brilliant, this woman really gets it. She said to the clinicians, you must not be afraid of what the eating disorder is afraid of. In other words, those doctors don't have eating disorders, but they have the same terror of gaining weight that children with eating disorders that they're treating of. And she was saying, you need to wake up. You've got yeah. the same thing. You need to recognize that and you need to not put that onto your patients. Yeah, and that's it's pretty common. Like you hear some real horror stories as well, and how people in bigger bodies are treated in you know in treatment centers and such. I don't know what it looks like in Ireland, but I wouldn't imagine it's that much different. And I think that's yeah, that is a huge, huge point. Um, because again, like yeah, it's it's not like we have to get people to the point where their body wants to be and where their bodies are well nourished um, and the brain are well nourished and things are functioning well and wherever that body might land on that it's it should be fine it should, you, and, and I also have a really hard time sometimes with professionals who are saying 
while I support people in their healing their relationship with food or recovering from binge eating disorder. And then, and then once they've done that, we can work on the weight stuff, like as in weight loss. And I'm like, okay, I just don't, I just don't like, I just don't, I don't understand the mental gymnastics on that actually either. And to be clear, I had many years ago, um, my first business cards over a decade ago, they said like lose weight without dining. And when I learned all this stuff and the harms of, of these things, I took a scissors and the ones I had left and I cut them up. So again, it's not like, you know, most of us are trained um, in as professionals in weight centric practices. All of us live in this weight centric, hyper-focused world on health and thinness. So it takes this radical unlearning to move away from that. But I think as if we are supporting other people, it's our duty of care to really work and unlearn our own internal anti-fat bias. And that's an ongoing practice and work, I think. It's ongoing. Yeah, I think about this. <laughs> There's very few things that are good about the, the label obesity. I don't like I'm only using that word because it, it describes a particular thing, but I think it's been used to stigmatize people. But the only the only upside of that word is that because you know there's this move now that obesity is like you know like a medical condition. So because of that, there's a lot more research going on to how do medical professionals deal with obesity, and they're finding massive rates of stigma. So now that the the consensus is we need to stop doctors being so stigmatized. You know, instead it's you know instead of seeing obesity as like a fatal flaw that it's like you know and their thinking is it's a medical condition whereas i think it's actually just the spectrum body diversity yeah but it's still a little bit of improvement because what it's meaning now is that there is this move to train doctors to not be biased against people who are living in larger body and to not deny care i mean both private and public systems around the world deny care routinely to people if they don't meet a certain uh, BMI and it's absolutely scandalous uh, it's absolutely scandalous that people of a certain size you know are not entitled to care according yeah. to the because again it rests on the belief that weight is very easy to control and that the only reason people are overweight is because they are sitting down having takeaway every single night and it's that's just what it is and they just need to eat a inverted commas balanced diet and they will wake up being, you know, again, inverted commas, normal weight. So that's that's why this is put because it's it's very much, again, you know, it wasn't Albert Einstein, it was someone else. It's always Albert Einstein that's quoted. It's not actually him, but he said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I mean, we all know diets don't work. And yeah. I think certainly in my most recent study, the participants, one of the big things that came out was the participants said that one of the things that kept the orthorexia going was they were getting so much praise from people. And even when they started to think, hang on a second now, I think there's something wrong. I don't think there's something quite right with me. It was very hard because they were like, oh my God, you're so great. Like, you know, look at you there eating this, that and the other. Aren't you so great? You know, so... Yeah. You know, it's cycle kept going by society. You know, orthorexia is very, you know very encouraged by society yeah, yeah it's a very socially sanctioned and then on top of that in today's world we now have like social media that just 
if it's not encouraging it, it's amplifying it. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, I don't think that can be sort of brushed aside either. I think it has to be recognized that that is a big part of it as well. So Lynn, I think this has been a really great conversation and I know there's like way more questions that I have and things that we can talk about. Maybe we have to do a second one at some point. But I always ask all my quest um, my guests, I should say, what does joyful nourishment mean to you? I would sum up joyful nourishment in one word, freedom. Freedom to eat a diet that feels good to your body freedom to go places with family and friends and freedom to be free in your own head and not be thinking and calculating food 24 seven. So freedom, that's what it means. It means freedom because without freedom, how can you ever be joyful? How can you ever yeah. be life? How can you ever really be comfortable in your body? Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, thank you. I just love hearing people's answers. Um, because they can vary to similar themes, but I just love when people uh, 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 yeah, answer that question. So thank you. And again, reminders where people can find you if they want to follow you, um, check out the work that you're doing. Yes. So um, Lighthouse Therapy underscore Ireland. I am on Instagram. Yes. Um, and that's where you can find me at the moment. We'll see what the future holds. Who yeah. knows? Now you're finished with your degree, so that's exciting. So I'm going to say, you know, I'll have a website and everything, but I just I don't have that right now because it's very what's the word? It's very current, you know. Yes, no, it's good, and whenever that might happen in the future, we'll I'm sure we'll touch base. So thank you again so much, Lynn, for coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Joyful Nourishment podcast is produced with no financial backing and your support means a lot to keep this project going. If this episode has been helpful in any way, please consider liking, subscribing or leaving a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. This helps the podcasts to be found by others. And of course, you can also forward this episode to a friend whom you think may benefit. Find out more about what I offer on straightforwardnutrition.com and if you're interested in working with me, please use the link in the show notes to book in for a free initial 30-minute session. And finally, please come and join the Joyful Nourishment community over on Substack unless you're there already by subscribing to my newsletter using the link below.